Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to our weekly message. As churches around the U.S. begin to open, ACC is planning our own opening as well. We are planning to start one service at 10 a.m. on Sundays with 25% capacity. You can sign up to come to these services on our website. You can also visit our website if you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or other key information. It's an easy website to remember, anacortischristian.church. That's A-N-A-C-O-R-T-E-S Christian.church. You can contact us directly through there or by phone or email. We look forward to hearing from you. As for now, take some time to sit down, get comfortable, and enjoy the message. So several years ago, uh, during my teaching days, I attended a workshop where I was introduced to a fascinating experiment nicknamed the monkey business illusion. Now, the group of us teachers that were in the classroom were instructed to watch a video in which two teams, there was one in black shirts, there was one in white shirts, they were all together on a small stage and each team had a ball and for 30 seconds, they were going to move around the stage in a small area, passing to their teammates. And as participants watching the video, our task was pretty easy. We just needed to count how many times the players in the white shirts passed the ball. So the 30 seconds started, and I intently watched, and I was counting every pass that the white shirt players made as they passed and they moved. And the time stopped. And I counted 16 passes. And then there was a voice that came over the video that said, how many passes did the white team make? They made 16 passes. And so I'm thinking to myself, nailed it. And I was feeling really good about myself. That was until the voice then asked, but did you see the gorilla? I'm like, what? See, there was definitely no gorilla. That, that's something I would not have missed. And, and yet, we, we rewound the video, uh, we watched it again, and sure enough, halfway through the passing, there's a man in a gorilla suit who just basically walked and strolled across the stage, stopped halfway through, pounded his chest for a few seconds, and then slowly walked off the other side. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world did I miss that? And I'm feeling pretty bad about myself until I found out that more than half the time, people miss the gorilla just like me. And the lesson of the experiment, what you focus on will determine what you see. Now, this principle, it doesn't just apply to moving gorillas. It also applies to our spiritual lives. You see, from the moment that Adam and Eve took fruit from the tree, and essentially told God, we can do a better job of running things than you. This world has been plagued with human-built kingdoms. Fragmented kingdoms that exist on the premise of might equals right, whose foundation is built on selfishness, and where greed and injustice are the norm. Whether you're living in Babylon or Persia, or Greece, or Rome, or even the current day United States, or any other country for that matter, the brokenness of kingdoms built and run by human hands 
is absolutely indisputable. And throughout the Bible, especially the book of Daniel, there exists a constant and undeniable contrast between two types of viewpoints. One view sees human beings and human achievements as the chief end of everything, while the other perspective recognizes that there's more than what meets the eye. In the midst of all our human laboring and building and fighting, there exists a God who is in control and who is building an eternal kingdom that is so much greater in value than anything we could ever imagine or build ourselves. And as we move into Daniel 6, the lesson we're encouraged to take from it is really it's similar to the monkey business illusion. It is which kingdom you focus on will determine what you see. Which kingdom you focus on will determine what you see. And in Daniel 6, we, we will see what it truly means to have what I call a kingdom perspective on life versus just merely seeing things from a worldly point of view. And, and some of you may be thinking right now, why, why does my perspective even matter? What's the big deal? And what we're going to discover in Daniel 6 is that it matters because which perspective you take really determines quite a bit. It, it determines how you live. It determines what you value. And ultimately, it determines the path of life that you'll choose to take. And so Daniel 6, actually, and I'm actually going to begin in, in the last verse of chapter 5 because it's the transition verse. This is what it says. It begins this way. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. And so remember last week, I kind of gave you my, my opinion. I, I believe that Darius the Mede is just another name, a nickname for Cyrus the Great. That wasn't uncommon to have uh, multiple names. His wife was from media, or not wife, but mother was from media. And so that's my opinion. There's a couple of other thoughts on that, but the reality is for our purposes, it doesn't really matter. And so, and Darius the Mede, it says, received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Now a satrap was really kind of a localized manager probably. And so these localized managers, they were to be throughout the entire kingdom. And over them, there were three high officials of whom Daniel was one. So these high officials were like governor types that were overseeing things. And the reason they were put in place, we're told, is so that the king might suffer no loss. It's funny to see that even ancient dictatorships had some of the same problems we experience with uh, maybe wasteful spending and, and corruption within the government. And so these three officials were to put a stop to that. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king had planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So he's about to put Daniel second in command. And so we just pause for a moment and take a look at this. And we see that the events here most likely are taking place just within a year, maybe two years after Darius took over the Babylonian Empire. And if you remember from last week, Daniel's now in his 80s. Apparently, he's been called out of retirement uh, in order to help the Persian king establish and, and structure his newly formed empire. And the king, he's assigned these 120 local, localized administrators, and he's put three overseers over them. And, and Daniel, 
is about to be named second in command. And, and Daniel, all through the book, is described as having something different about him that people notice. And, and right here, he talks about there's an excellent spirit in him. And, and no doubt, this is a direct gifting from God. But this spirit, it had to have shown through in his things like his work ethic or his integrity or his trustworthiness I mean, for Darius to even think about trusting him enough to place him second in command. Now, just think about, and this is a side note, but think about this for a minute. I mean, this is a big deal. You're being placed second in command of the, the world empire. How would you have responded to this? I know I would have struggled with it. I can just be honest. I mean, there, there's a dangerous allure of human approval. To receive recognition, it's flattering, but it also has a tendency to change a person to puff us up, or at least it does me. And it creates an arrogance within us. If you were with us last week, we talked about that, that makes us think more of ourselves than what is really true. And so, so often when we get this taste of human endorsement, we start basing our identity on it and we will compromise our integrity in order to keep it. And yet this is one thing about Daniel that, that both impresses and challenges me so much. He just doesn't seem to care. He doesn't care about obtaining or maintaining the approval of others. He, uh, he sees it for what it is, which is just temporary and ultimately empty. And I have to believe that comes from his perspective that he has on life. If you'll remember last week, the way he responded to Belshazzar when, when Belshazzar offered him royal possessions and royal power, and Daniel just says, you know, I really don't need that. Just, you can go ahead and keep it. I don't care about it. But we find that not only is human approval, it's, it's fleeting, but it's also dangerous. And we humans are, are also jealous creatures by nature. And so receiving human approval can sometimes put a target on your back. And as we continue in the passage, you know, you have to think, how do you think Daniel's co-workers responded to his success. You know, you wonder, did they throw him a party to celebrate his promotion? And what we find out is that's hardly the case. We pick it back up in verse 4, and this is what it says. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. So stop. Why, why would they do that? Well, that doesn't tell us, but the implication, the thought is that they're jealous. When, where does jealousy come from? It comes from this, I want what you have. You know, I'm comparing myself to you and, and you have something I want and so I'm going to go after it. And so they go after Daniel, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom. Now, this is a lie, right? There's, this is not all the high officials. Daniel definitely, I'm assuming, has not been consulted about this. And, and I'm pretty sure that he would not have gone along with what they're cooking up. But Darius probably believes that he's in He's endorsing this as well. They come and they say, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance 
and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. And so we, we look at Daniel and we look at what he's done in the first five chapters so far and everything that he did that we see, his decisions, his actions, his behavior, they were all motiva- motivated by this kingdom perspective. His belief in God's promised kingdom. He saw himself as a citizen of this unseen kingdom. And his allegiance to it dictated his choices. Even when those choices would lead him to dark and deadly places. So how did Daniel live? This is what we're told. We're told that Daniel was so known for his moral integrity and faithfulness to his God that his rivals used those things as a means to trap him. And get this, their entire plan hinged on their belief that he would remain faithful even in the face of death. That says a lot about Daniel. Daniel's enemies, on the other hand, they were fully invested in, in what they could get out of this world, what could be given by the, to them by human hands. And so what does this lead them to do? Those people conspiring against Daniel, they're so jealous and ruthless and we can assume so desperate to rise in the ranks of the empire that they're willing to lie and murder a good man for their own personal gain. It reminds me of the Jewish leaders who had Jesus executed in order to preserve their own positions of authority. Now, right now, I'm not saying that if you live for the treasures that this world offers, that you are going to go out and go so far as to commit murder, even though I do think some people have and and would. But I do believe that this is a prime example of what what we know to be true in our, our own lives and our own experiences, and it's this. Your perspective will determine how you live. Your perspective will determine how you live. Now, before we move on in the text, I want to quickly just talk about the proposal that Daniel's enemies present to the king and and what it entailed. And so their proposal, it, it did not outright proclaim Darius to be a god, but instead what it stated was for 30 days, Darius would be the one representative and mediator between all gods and man. And so you think about his kingdom and you think of all the different nationalities that were represented and all the different gods that were worshipped. And so for 30 days, Darius was to be the go-between. He was to be the mediator and the representative for all gods. And once he signed this by Persian custom, and there's historical evidence that backs this up, it could not be taken back even by the king himself. And so that brings us to verse 10. And this is what it says. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had previously done. So Daniel, he knows the document's been signed. And what does he do? He does what he always does. He turns to Jerusalem, which at this point is just a pile of rubble, and he prays and he chooses, in doing so, he chooses God's kingdom over Persia. 
In doing this, he renounces everything of worldly value that he had, his position, his approval, his possessions, his very life. I mean, I just, I think how easily he could have kept what he had. I mean, just, just a, a little compromise. Don't pray visibly for a month. Pray in your head. But Daniel, I think this is bigger than that. He, he refuses to compromise. And in doing so, what Daniel says is that this means more than this. And not only will your perspective determine how you live, but it will also determine what you value. Your perspective will also determine what you value. We see the same attitude in Jesus when he was tempted by the devil. It says in Matthew 4, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You see, both Daniel and Jesus, they knew of and expected a kingdom whose value and whose treasures infinitely outweigh the silly and insignificant trinkets that this world dangles before us. And in, in talking about this, I, I cannot help but think of Tim Keller. Uh, I was recently saddened to hear about that he has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Uh, and Keller, he's always been one of my heroes of the faith. I've learned so much from him over the years, reading his books, listening to his message, messages. However, it was his, it's been his response in the face of this diagnosis that has inspired and taught me the most, I think. Because I came across his response at a point where I was honestly feeling really discouraged about my own health. And this is what he did in notifying people about his diagnosis and in asking for prayer, this was one of his requests. Just listen to this. He says, please pray for Kathy, that's his wife, and me, that we would use this opportunity to be weaned from the joys of this world and to desire God's presence above all. To be weaned from the joys of this world and to desire God's presence above all. You see, your perspective will determine what you value. Now, the attitudes I've just described, they are in just such stark contrast to those men who conspire against Daniel. We pick back up in 11 to see how these men, what they, what they do. It says, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And at this point, Daniel's probably, says, making a plea before his God. Daniel probably knows what's going to happen. I don't think he, I think he, he's not in the dark. And he's probably, as he's done previously, praying for deliverance. And then verse 12 goes on. Then they came near, and that, that word came near doesn't even really do justice to the, the, the literal translation here. It's like they're tripping over themselves, these conspirators, trying to see who can tattle on Daniel first. And as they're tripping over themselves, trying to get to King Darius as fast as they could, they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. 
Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles, they're going to paint him as in, bad of, as in as bad of light as possible. Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. And so he, he's not upset at Daniel. He's upset because he knows he's been duped. He knows he's been tricked by these officials. And so what he does, he sets his mind to deliver Daniel. He's going to do everything in his power to deliver Daniel. And it says he labored until the sun went down to try and rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Do you see the ironic truth in this? The king, the most powerful man in the world, desperately wants to rescue Daniel, but he's powerless to do so. We can't miss that. I think that's one of the problems with human-built kingdoms is their limitations. They make claims and they make promises that they are ultimately powerless to deliver on. And so Darius the one who claimed to rule the people and represent the gods has been duped by the ones he was supposed to rule. And by his own prideful choice, he was forced to submit to those who were supposed to be submissive to him. And as a result, found himself completely powerless. For a moment, I thought I was reading Genesis 3. They sound a lot alike. But in the end, the, this pagan king, he has to recognize and acknowledge the truth that only Daniel's God had the power to truly rescue and deliver. And so we pick things back up at verse 17. It says, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of the lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then this is actually Daniel's only line in the entire chapter, which is interesting. This is what he says. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God, and the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Your perspective 
will ultimately determine the path you take. Your perspective will ultimately determine the path you take. And, and let me see if I can explain this a little bit more. Uh, what I mean by this, in Matthew 7, Jesus talked about two gates and two ways. One gate and path led to life. The other led to destruction. And in talking about this, Jesus tells his followers, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And so what we learn here is that the path that leads to destruction, it was wide, it's inviting, it's easy to maneuver. The path that led to life he described as narrow and it's difficult to navigate and it probably involves a lot of struggle. And what we we see here is appearances are are deceiving. And as we come to verse 17... I think we see that truth, that Daniel, he's in a dark place while his enemies are high above, watching, watching down on him, seemingly comfortable and appearing to be victorious. And yet there's one big factor that just flips this entire scenario on its head, and that is that God is in the lion's den. And because of this, I like the way James Boyce puts it, he says, the lion's den was the safest place in all of Babylon. Psalm 23 talks about, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And I think what we see here in Daniel, it doesn't indicate that placing your trust in God is going to provide you with a a comfortable or easy life, nor does it promise that you will miraculously be delivered from death or suffering. But what we can take from this is that the narrow road that we choose when we decide to follow God, first of all, it will be full of difficulty and struggle. But it is also the path that leads to resurrection and new life. And that's what we see here in Daniel 6. We see it also in Daniel 3, those the two chapters parallel each other. Daniel 6 is a resurrection scene. When Daniel enters into and is sealed into this pit of death, He's essentially as good as dead. It's only because of his faith and trust in God and God's deliverance of him is he rescued and resurrected to new life. While those who conspired against him, who completely ignored God's kingdom, who sought after their own, you know, their own fortune and their own, ulti- you know, their own gain through their own power, they, their ultimate destination, that, that path they took, it led to their own destruction. Throughout his ministry, Jesus continually spoke of humanity's need to be rescued. Every one of us has willingly divorced ourselves from the source of life. And yet God has provided us a path back to life. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so the question that you and I need to answer is, which path are we going to choose to take? Are we going to take the path that Jesus has made and that leads us through? Or or are we going to take the one that relies on our own human ability and our own human knowledge? Will I come to God and allow him to rescue me? Or will I choose to try to find life on my own and rescue myself? Goes right in line with what Jesus said in Matthew 16 when he tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The, the chapter in Daniel, it closes with this. I'm in verse 25. It says, Then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all, all the earth. He said, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be, shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions, so that this Daniel, so that this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, and, and, and that could also mean that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In talking about resurrection, I love the comment that James Jordan makes about it. This is what he says. He says, what is important to see is that death and resurrection it is never in, in biblical religion a way of returning to the way things used to be. It's not mere resuscitation. The resurrected life is always a transformation of the life before death. And I think we see that here in the King's proclamation. And so in our time together, we have talked about the importance of having a kingdom perspective and how it will determine how you live and what you value and ultimately what path in life you will take. But I want to close by commenting on the question, how do you develop a kingdom perspective? And the reason I mention this is it's not because I'm an expert on this matter, but because it's the question that I was asking myself as I wrestled with this passage this week. It's something I really wanted to know. How do you develop this type of perspective on life? And, I, and while it's dangerous, I think, to place too much focus on the human instruments that God uses to accomplish his purposes, I do believe that it would benefit us to examine how Daniel developed such a clear kingdom perspective in the midst of so many challenges and temptations. And in this regard, I think he serves as a model that we all can follow. And here's the thing that stands out the most to me, is that it's his commitment in times of spiritual crisis. It wasn't the result of a momentary choice. It wasn't like the crisis came and then all of a sudden he turned it on and was able to respond appropriately. But instead, it was the crisis that revealed the depth of his faith and commitment. You see, the kingdom perspective, it doesn't come naturally. In fact, the phrase that stood out the most to me is really one of the more obscure phrases in the chapter. It's this. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and give thanks before his God as he had done previously. This was a way of life for Daniel. This was his everyday daily routine. So even for a spiritual giant like Daniel, he recognized his constant need to realign himself with God. And, and I couldn't help, as I'm thinking about that, comparing it to something I've, I've actually been dealing with recently. Um, as I've shared with, with many of you in dealing with the neurological issues that I've had over the past months, uh, I have struggled with a handful of symptoms. But the most nagging, I think, or the one that seems to nag on me um, 
most consistently has to do with my own spatial awareness. And what I mean by that is there are times where I'm actually standing straight, but I feel like I'm leaning slightly to the right. And I feel like I'm on this, tent, uh, this tilt. And in trying to com combat this, I've basically had to like kind of modify or retrain my vestibular system. So anytime, here's what I would do. Anytime I would feel slanted, we have a full length mirror uh, in one of our rooms, I would go and stand in front of that mirror and look at myself and just see what I was feeling. And, and I would go and I would balance and I would stand on one foot and the other foot. Uh, but what I needed to do, I needed to kind of see what I was experiencing and compare it to what reality was. And I would often do this several times a day because I knew that what I was feeling and experiencing, it wasn't in line with reality. I knew that I needed to continually check in and remind myself of, of what was really true. And I think from a spiritual standpoint, we're all like this. We're all spiritually slanted, even spiritual giants like Daniel. And what we feel doesn't reflect what is real. And so in order to develop and maintain a kingdom perspective, we must all continually check back into our spiritual mirror. And what is that spiritual mirror? In Colossians 1, Paul informs us that Jesus is the physical image of the invisible God. He is our spiritual mirror. And as Jesus says in John 15, apart from him, we can do nothing. This is the challenge that I've received this past week. And now I share it with you. That like Daniel, we would long for and demonstrate a kingdom perspective especially in this crazy world around us, knowing that our citizenship is not here, but in God's kingdom. I, I thought it would be appropriate to finish with the words of Paul in Philippians. This is what he says. I think it, it, it fits with what we've been talking about and what we see in our world. It says, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in, the, in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Father, it is my heart and my prayer and my desire that you would give me a kingdom perspective. Father, you have challenged me that, that, that my life, it doesn't, as far as when I compare it with, with other, with the spiritual giants in your world like Daniel, and I see how they responded to you and how they needed you daily, that, that Father, I don't have the kingdom perspective I should. So I ask that for myself, but I ask that for everybody who's listening. I pray you would challenge us that we would see the need 
to have a kingdom perspective and see things through your eyes, and that we would do that by continually checking back in, realizing that we are weak and we are spiritually slanted. And, and Father, we need to see you in order to know how to live in this crazy world. And so, Lord, I ask that. I ask that you would give us that desire. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. We want to remind you that we love you and God loves you and you always have a place here at ACC. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you need prayer or just want someone to talk to. You can find that information on our website. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.